0: Good evening, everyone. I'm very pleased indeed to see so many people here for this discussion. And what I'll do is, in a moment, to introduce our panel of speakers, but first say just a very few words to frame the discussion tonight. Um, my name is Rowan Williams. I'm the Master of Magdalen College just across the road. And I've been a bit involved here and there with issues around homelessness in this city. And one of the things which I want to say by way of introduction, is that just as the issue of homelessness is not one issue that can be treated in isolation, so questions around drug addiction and substance misuse cannot be treated in isolation. This is a challenge which is locked into a whole range of other questions, questions to do with crime, to do with poverty, to do with health policy, and a range of other things which I've no doubt we'll hear about. The premise of this evening's discussion, really, is that the way in which we have habitually framed in this country issues around addiction has been, for several decades, seriously wrongly configured. We're used to hearing about a war on drugs. We're used to looking at issues around the criminality of drug use, while not quite noticing how much our policy contributes to problems around criminality. We're used to seeing this as an issue which is regularly pushed off the roster of serious subjects for serious discussion, because it's a dog whistle question for so many people. Everybody knows, or everybody knows, what they think about drug misuse. It's clearly a bad thing, capital B, capital T, and therefore it ought to be stamped out, capital S, capital O. Now, I, th- I strongly suspect that everyone on the panel tonight will have a rather different picture um, as regards that. And what we are hoping to do this evening is by drawing on this variety of experience here at this table to make some contribution to reconfiguring, reimagining our questions. Current drug policy in this country as in many countries across the world not least in the United States is seriously flawed counterproductive and in many ways it drives people further into destructive spirals of behaviour we want to ask this evening quite simply what have we got wrong what could we be learning where is it being done better and what the chances are of containing a problem which claims lives and livelihoods at a terrifying rate. Now our speakers tonight, as I said, represent some widely different kinds of expertise. Starting from my left, we have Johannes Lenhard, who has done a lot of work on the issue of homelessness in Europe, but also in America, I believe in San Francisco. And he has a great deal of expertise in making those connections that I've already suggested, those connections which remind us that issues like drug abuse and homelessness don't exist in neat little boxes but leak into one another all the time. We have next to you, Hannes, Fiona Godley, who's editor-in-chief of the BMJ, and one of the uh, important documents we've all been looking at in preparation for today is an editorial the BMJ, the war on drugs has failed. Calling on the medical profession to pick up the cause of law reform in this area. Uh, Fiona is an honorary professor at the Netherlands School for Primary Care Research, an honorary fellow of the Royal College of General Practitioners, senior visiting fellow at the Institute of Public Health in this university, an honorary fellow of the Faculty of Public Health, and a bi-fellow of King's College, Cambridge. So you'd expect, with all that, that she's got one or two ideas to rub together on this. <laughs> We have, on my right, Vicky Marchevitz, who is executive director of Change Live Grow. She's been working in the substance misuse sector since 1998, having studied criminology here in Cambridge, working on the front line of the penal system in Worm- Wormwood Scrubs and Brixton, working also for the Home Office Drugs Prevention Advisory Service, and for Hertfordshire County Council. The Change, Grow, Live charity is a health and social care foundation, and she is executive director for the East and London and the Southeast, and it's a charity which provides health and social care services to adults, children, and young people, and is delivering the uh, contact for addiction support services in Cambridge. But there's no point at all in a discussion like this being entirely conducted by one kind of expert... The word expert originally, of course, simply means somebody who has experience, and we wanted part of this conversation to involve someone with lived experience of these issues. And so it's a pleasure to welcome John Brady to join the panel tonight, speaking from that direct experience of the question, with, I'm sure, some uh, pungent and personal views on the subject. And John, I'm going to ask you to begin, if you would.
1: Hello, I'm John Brady. Um, the reason why I'm here is, as one it said, to give you an insight into my life regarding drugs, criminality, uh, the justice system, homelessness, the whole shebang over a quarter of a century. Um, I've been clean off drugs for three and a half years. Um, I've lived in Europe doing drugs, Scotland doing drugs, uh, all over. Um, getting off drugs, um, as much as I was told for years and years from all these different good people, um, taking the horse to the water,
2: Mm.
1: it's just self-realisation, and when the penny drops, the penny drops, that's the end of that, I never had any counselling or rehab ever, not a day, ever, and for me it was just self-realisation, getting too old for it and wanting to change my life around and start a new chapter in my life, and uh, I'm three and a half years into it and it's great uh, The help is the help has always been there I think but it's just when you're on heroin and other drugs you're not genuinely looking for the help it's all over the place the help but you don't see it you don't see it people tell you it's there and try and lead you there um, but until that self realization drops, I, um, all the help, all the rehabs, all the hostels, and that, people still come out and still re offend. And, and I don't know if that would have worked for me or not at an earlier age, but what did work for me was a healthy prison sentence. It was a healthy prison sentence. Um, and time away. to to have a good think of and have a change of outlook on life. Um, That's what's made me change my ways. Uh, Having time away to, enough time away to really think what you want to do. Um, And that's what's helped me. Um, It's a shame as it is, but the truth of the the matter is, yeah, I was getting uh, maybe nine months since the in prison for nine months, 12 months, coming out. I hadn't even come down from mm-hmm. the drugs that it was on in the first place, really. I was just back in the circle again and again and again. Um, so it was time away. I treated it as a private rehab, free gym, you know. Uh, uh, practicing Buddhism three <coughs> times a week in the mm-hmm. city center, using the gym every time and reading as much as i can and stuff and just changed it you know used it and, and it's helped me um but that was the only thing it's uh <coughs> it's the only thing that spurred me and i don't know it must have been a time away it's the only thing that spurred me to change my life around and try and get a help that is available and it is available If you want it, I was a bit proud to ask for it sometimes. I mm. um, started using drugs in 95. Uh, I, was, I was in a parachute regiment in 1990 and I, I broke my back and shattered my heel. And it was whilst getting physiotherapy on that, I met a lady who introduced me to heroin. And I was 25. And that's uh, how I got introduced to it. It was the—I never had uh, any. I, don't know, I think it was the era and the, the scene at the time, because I never had a, a dysfunctional upbringing. Had a really good upbringing, really brilliant upbringing, and nobody's in trouble in the family or nothing like this. It was a black sheep. I you know, gone when I was seventeen. But uh but people always around, what I found was, especially in prison and stuff like this, the people I'm talking to, I'd say more than eighty percent of them who used heroin and got into prison, you know, or broken families mm-hmm. and stuff like this. And I, I thought to myself sometimes well, none of this is relating to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so why did I go on to use it? You know, people will say, oh, don't use heroin, that's bad, it's really bad, yeah, don't use that, it's bloody taboo. But they didn't tell you why it was bad, and, Mm. you know, how it does ruin your life. They never give you the details, I never got the juicy details like Mm. that, it was just, that's bad, end off, don't do it. Okay, I won't do it. Why is it bad? Let me try it, and then next thing, 20 years later, um... And in that time, people tried to, uh, to get myself clean numerous times. But until the penny drops in your head, so, you know, self-realization, you know, that's what's happened for me. Getting too old for it, and I want to change my life around and <coughs> enjoy what I've got left. I'm thankful I'm still here. Over those three times, <coughs> woke up in Brooks, Lucky to be alive, you know, so I just want to make the most of what I've got here and use the help that's around Cambridge. Um, Keep it on
3: like that. That's it.
0: Thank you very much indeed, John. Thank you. Vicky.
3: Okay. Okay, good evening. Um, I'm really pleased to be here. It's very special to me because 20 years ago in 1999, I did my master's here at the Institute of Criminology. And the subject matter that my uh, professor kind of forced me into doing was drugs policy and that's really where the start of my journey began in this sector so it's really nice to be here today and just before i came to cambridge to do my masters um there was uh, the first ever national drug strategy was written and published in 1998 and with that came a huge injection in funding towards drug treatment a whole range of interventions but particularly around drug treatment. And that funding was very much a response to trying to reduce crime. So that's where the context I wanted to start with, to talk about the service landscape across the UK at the moment, really helps to start thinking about um, when the drug strategy was written in 1998. So what determines what exists across each local area, each community, is determined by need. So each local authority is issued with um, a fund it used to be called the Pool Treatment Budget, now it's called Public Health Grant. And what that does is allow local areas to determine the kind of services that their local communities need. So Cambridge has very different needs to the Wirral. The Wirral has very different needs to Newcastle. Newcastle has very different needs to Chichester. So each local area is able to determine what they need for their own communities. So in effect, there's three types of addiction services across this country. So we've got community treatment, and that ranges from everything from advice and information to harm reduction, and that means access to clean needles if you're injecting, or harm reduction advice about the harms and the causes and the issues that come with with using drugs. Harm reduction also covers a wider health angle, so looking at accessing people into support around their health that's caused by the drugs that they're using. So community treatment also includes prescribing interventions, which effectively means if you're using heroin, you can be prescribed a different drug that stops you using street drugs, detoxification, and then, of course, the psychological interventions that go hand-in-hand with the clinical interventions. And then in some areas, they've got uh, specific services for homelessness that's uh, relating to addictions, housing, supported housing for people with substance misuse problems, and recovery type services to support people to maintain recovery when they become drug free so that's the bulk of the treatment that's available within communities but there's also residential facilities some of you might know the term the priory you might have heard of the private rehab sector so that's usually the most commonly known of the residential rehabilitations but each local authority area has funding <coughs> and can fund people to go into residential treatment for detox and or rehab and that particular type of uh, substance misuse treatment in communities, those residential settings, have been hit by austerity because they're funded on a placement basis, either through local authorities privately or through drug treatment services. With austerity, as budgets have been cut, those are some of the services that have been reduced over time, and it's really sad that we're seeing some really great detox units uh, across the country that are shutting down simply because they don't have the funds And the third element of treatment is within our prison setting, so it's really interesting that that was one of the points that you were talking about. Uh, Within prisons, the, the idea is that health and social care within prisons is mirrored, what's in the community, as far as is possible. So the same range of treatment facilities are provided within prisons. And what we often find within the drug treatment sector is that prisons are a great place because people have that respite, they've got a roof over their head three meals a day, access to education in some prisons, access to, to sport and gym. Again, depends which prison that you're in. And it's almost like a captive audience that the, the, the service users within prisons are able to be stable enough to engage in therapeutic interventions. And it can be the difference between being in the community and being in prison can be what changes people's behavior when, they are, um, when they're released from prison. So who provides the services? There's a range. As I mentioned, the primary is obviously a private facility. There are other private uh, rehabs and some private prescribers. But in the main, the services are provided by the voluntary sector and mental health trusts and NHS consortiums, or a mixture of all three. But as well as specialist providers delivering uh, addiction services, there's also a whole range of providers that are in the community that work to support addiction treatment. So GPs have a role, pharmacists have a a very strong role because they provide lots of needle exchange and supervised administration of prescribed opiates. Opioids, I think, is the new, the wider term. Um, And also homelessness services, housing services, criminal justice services such as probation, police and prisons as well. So there's a whole host of, um, of people out there that are supporting the needs of our service users. It's not just the commissioned services that work on their own. And I'll come on to a bit about the why later on. So most communities across the UK have got some form of the types of services that I've described within their communities driven by need. But what's really interesting is thinking about some of the innovation that's going on across this country. So in the northeast, they've just had the first heroin-assisted treatment pilot, which is really groundbreaking, really forward-thinking, and it's happening elsewhere in the world, and it's known and evidence-based to reduce the harm to those that are the most chaotic service users by having heroin prescribed rather than moving people onto a different drug, be it methadone or or similar drugs like that. Other innovations are peer-to-peer, so service user-to-service user, naloxone distribution. So naloxone is a drug that we um, give out within the treatment sector across the country and it's also uh, provided through pharmacies and in effect it reverses the effects of of opioids and and can reverse the effects of an overdose. The treatment systems are having real success in penetrating the the in-treatment population. But we know that about 40%, we think estimated, around about 40% of people who use drugs are not engaging in treatment systems. So by utilising peer networks to distribute naloxone to homeless communities that aren't engaged in services is another piece of innovation that we're learning from and developing across the sector. So as part of my brief, I was asked to respond to how the treatment services work best in in my experience. And I'm just going to pick on a couple of, of key Topics for me. Integrated systems work much better where you've got multidisciplinary teams with doctors, nurses, non clinical recovery type workers, counsellors, experts by experience, people that have been through the treatment system, all working as a team to respond to the needs of the service users. That's where things work best. Very rarely do we see service users presenting or people who use drugs coming into contact with services with one problem. They've usually got a range, and that's what you mentioned, Rowan, in your introduction. And the other bit about integrated services is there's no point in treatment systems sitting in isolation. We need to engage with our partners. So pharmacists quite often see people every single day for either needles or supervised consumption. They know how the people are because quite often they don't necessarily engage in in services. So by engaging with GPs, hospitals, pharmacies, we're able to provide much more holistic treatment packages. And the other piece for me is about services being accessible. And that goes beyond having a a town centre, for example, location. They need to be accessible to people who have real issues around stigma. So women from particular communities, particular uh, black and minority ethnic communities, really struggle with walking through that front door because of the stigma attached, particularly in towns where people have grown up, gone to school and stayed. They're worried about their, their, you know, their aunts best friend or their next door neighbor's daughter seeing them walk into a premises. So it's about accessibility and it's not as simple as just saying we need to have a service within a town center area. It's much broader than that. And underpinning everything for me, and it's really close to my heart, is optimized dosing. Now that sounds like a um, quite a complicated term, but lots of people come to our services because they need help for a heroin addiction. And more often than not, Uh, They're not given enough dose of the drug for whatever reason, historical guidance. We are working very, very hard across the sector to ensure that people that come into services are given the right kind of dose and titrated really, really quickly to the right dose, so they're not having to use drugs on top, they're not having to take street heroin, which can result in overdose. It can also result in still mixing with people who are using drugs and mixing with drug dealing networks, which... No, it's not something that they want to be doing if they're engaging in services, so optimised dosing is really, really important and really helps the systems work well. So where do I see things are missing was also within my brief. So I mentioned at the beginning that in '98 a huge amount of funds, billions of pounds were injected into the treatment system. Through austerity between then and now, as you all know, funding for public services has been reduced for a number of reasons. <laughs> And you, you can 't really get away from that that feature as we move through what we know is that around about twenty to thirty percent of treatment budgets have been reduced across most areas, and in some areas it 's as high as forty percent so that 's the difference I mean if you think about that in terms of staff that 's huge because they are the most expensive resource and what we do know which is, 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 quite, is quite a, it does hit quite hard that the areas that have been most reduced in terms of budgets have got the highest drug-related death rates, and that's something that we can't get away from. So people are dying, people are dying at greater rates. We know some of the reasons why. We know that accidental overdose is one of the reasons people are dying, and we have a response to that in naloxone, so there is something that we can do about having much better penetration within drug-using communities, but also frontline services and community members. There's nothing to stop all of you in this room being trained by the local drug treatment service in Naloxone and carrying a pen. We've had community members saving lives across the country, not just within Cambridge or within our organization, but much more broadly. We also know that mental health, access to good, robust mental health services is something that's missing. There's pockets of good practice. But there's an age-old problem that I've been battling with for 20 years about you know, do the mental health services take responsibility to the substance misuse services? It's not, it is a very difficult nut to crack, but it surely is not beyond the wit of man. So that is also something that needs to be looked at consistently. And then finally, the other reason that we know that people are dying from substance misuse is due to chronic health conditions. So COPD, problems with lungs, liver disease, and much more broad sort of general health conditions. So much earlier access into primary care, into secondary care, knowing about people's drug and alcohol misuse much, much earlier is missing and would really help the drug treatment systems. So moving, the sort of final point I wanted to make about what's missing is trying to move policy-wise away from this criminalizing drug user approach, which is, is in effect what our policies are now doing. So one of the service users that I was talking to about naloxone said, you know, I don't want to take naloxone because if I take it into my hostel and it gets found, I'll get evicted. So that is criminalising the individual for trying to keep himself himself safe. So that's something that needs to be looked at, moving towards a much more health and human rights-driven approach to drugs policy. So I wanted just to touch on what our service users are asking for and what they've been saying. So in 1998, when the drug strategy came out, service users had a really strong voice in relation to harm reduction, and they maintained that strong voice and they influenced... (coughs) policy makers around the recovery movement. So what became, what was a very much harm reduction focused drug strategy right back in the beginning, moved towards a recovery movement and it was driven by service users. They were saying, you know, we want you to be more aspirational about us. We don't want to be parked on a methadone script for the rest of our lives. We want to be moving through treatment. So service users still want to be able to influence the services that they access and that's a fundamental, Issue that we've got. It works really well in lots of places, and in some places, service users don't feel that they have a voice. And the other issue is that it's not just drug treatment services that have been um, influenced and, and cut effectively by austerity. All the other services that support our kind of clients have also been cut. So, what we're seeing in the drug treatment system is um, individuals turning up for services that have got multiple complex needs, which are quite challenging to respond to. And because our services have also been reduced, our our staff are struggling to connect with service users in the way that they used to. And the overarching comment from service users nowadays is that they want to be noticed. They want to be connected with, and they want meaningful connections. And it's one of the points that you talked about, that sort of self-realization. We know from the evidence that connection is one of the things that really breaks the back of addiction more than a script or more than a psychological intervention. That connection with the service, with other people who use drugs, with other people who are peers, with people who are not using drugs is what makes the the difference for service users and that's what they want more of. So that's something that we want to respond to. And I'm going to finish with um, a quote or or a statement. What service users want to be asked is what matters to me rather than what is the matter with me. And we've moved too much towards focusing on the problem rather than the person that's presented in front of us. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. Fiona.
4: Thank you, Rowan. Um, Thanks, Vicky and John. Um, Last week, I came off my bicycle. Um, I slipped on wet cobbles, which is a a Cambridge phenomenon. and I fractured and dislocated my shoulder. I think Ooh. I'm being incredibly brave because look at it now. Um, passers-by were immediately helpful. They, they, they came and they gathered up my stuff. They got my bicycle. They really were very helpful. There was a very sympathetic policeman who was polite and compassionate and asked me not to move and to stop swearing. And <laughs> <laughs> the ambulance came quite quickly. The ambulance men were very, um, very helpful. I got into the casualty very quickly, a senior nurse what was needed after x-raying really excellent everyone very encouraging good follow-up in clinic Um, you know i feel pretty pretty good about it all Uh, when i was walking here i I thought to myself what if bicycling was illegal
3: Mm.
4: what if it was criminalized Mm. Uh, both the sale and the use of bicycles what if the passers-by had stepped over me Mm. Uh, The police had been more interested in locking me up than in helping me. What if the NHS had, of course, done their bit, but um, with less sympathy for my immediate and, indeed, my longer-term plight? And what if the bicycle had been illegally obtained, um, bought at quite a high price from criminals, dodgy brakes, exploding tyres, unsafe and dangerous? And I, myself, as a result, outcast, maybe lose my job, my home, my family, criminalized and imprisoned. Um, it sounds far-fetched, doesn't it? It sounds absurd, really. Um, but, and it's not my intention, in the least, to trivialize drug use, especially injecting drug use. Um, my aim is to highlight the absurdity of the current law. Drugs as... Re- Rowan has said, are harmful to physical and mental health, and they destroy lives, they destroy families, they destroy communities. Um, and we absolutely want to reduce that harm. We want to prevent people starting taking drugs. We want to help them stop taking drugs. We want to promote well-being. But at least some of the harm, and I would argue quite a lot of the harm, maybe most of the harm that drugs do, is actually a direct result of criminalization mm. um, and of uh, drug users being blamed as individuals for the situation they find themselves in. And I would also argue that prohibition itself is is a, is a cause of a great deal of that harm, and I'm not alone in arguing that. It seems very clear to me that we're in a sort of ideological straitjacket where drugs are bad, as, as Rowan has said, and uh, therefore prohibition is the only response. Uh, I think the evidence that that is a failed policy is very, very strong from around the world and increasingly in the UK. And so that's really my thesis, um, which was the editorial that <laughs> Rowan mentioned in the BMJ, that um, the war on drugs is failing, mm. uh, and that we need to think again. So I'm just going to briefly do a kind of romp through the evidence that the war on, war on drugs is failing, um, and, and perhaps just to re- reiterate the, the sort of current legal position with a focus on the UK. So uh, non-medical use of drugs, heroin, cocaine, cannabis, similar drugs to that is prohibited. Uh, There are three global United Nations treaties uh, that require all countries to have a prohibition policy. The oldest of these is from the 1960s. The U.K. and many other countries meet this obligation by criminalizing the possession and sale of drugs through imprisonment and fines, and elsewhere even the death penalty is applied for personal drug (coughs) possession. And this is what we call the war on drugs. Uh, And criminalization of sale and possession has direct and largely negative consequences. So the drug trade is controlled by criminals. Uh, It's unregulated, meaning there is no mechanism to control the quality or potency of drugs or to whom they are sold. A quarter of UK 15-year-olds, I'm the mother of two teenagers around this age, have ever taken an illicit drug. It's one in in four UK 15-year-olds. But these children had no idea, largely, what they were taking about its purity mm. or its strength. And, and you can go out into Cambridge and get pretty much anything, as my children, uh, one of them in particular, has discovered and, and the other also knows. Um, so currently, children are readily exposed to drug sellers. Um, they're sucked, some of them, into county lines. Mm. The National Crime Agency estimates that county lines um, brings profits uh, to the criminals of 500 million pounds per year. And obviously there are so many other issues when children get involved in the sale and use of drugs. Um, but I think one of the key things about criminalization is that it inhibits interventions that could provide more education and safer drug taking and treatment for people with drug use disorders. Um, because providing harm reduction interventions requires that we accept that drug taking is occurring. And the myth of the war on drugs is that it can be eliminated, that we can live in a drug free free society those who believe that uh, talk about the fact that prohibition isn't working because it's not being applied strictly enough and when you challenge them about where in the world it is working mm. the two answers are Japan and South Korea mm. now those are very good countries they're 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 not um, police states but they are not Western liberal democracies by tradition mm. uh, I don't believe there is a single Western liberalized country where prohibition um, has worked always working Um, Now, in some countries, needle exchange uh, places for injecting drug users are standard practice, but um, consumption rooms generally remain banned because drug taking is criminalised. As for the scale of drug taking worldwide, 1 in 20 people took an illegal drug in 2016, according to surveys, and in the US, drug overdose is now the leading killer of Mm. under 50-year-olds, so it's it's a major public health issue. There's growing evidence that the harsher the prohibition, uh, the worse the harm. Uh, it stigmatizes users, we've heard this, makes it harder to get help, favors stronger drugs, encourages riskier practices such as needle sharing, and it impedes evidence based harm reduction activities. Uh, in the UK, the government is committed to ending non medical drug use. That is the current policy, ending non medical drug use, which I think is a fantasy. Um, uh, and, it, and as one might expect, the progress is very slim. It um, there is no progress. The UK government's own 2014 survey found that strictness of drug laws made no difference to use. Abstinence um, as, an, as a policy is not evidence based. Efforts to implement prohibition have not reduced drug use, and in fact, drug use in the UK <coughs> is rising. The UK has the most drug deaths in, in, since its records began in 2018, so 4,359 drug deaths in the UK. Uh, which is the highest ever. Scotland has by far the highest death rate in the European Union, with three times that of the UK as a whole. Um, And um, these, I think, statistics are the deaths. This is the tip of the iceberg uh, for for the much wider harm. Efforts to open safer consumption (coughs) rooms for people who inject in Scotland uh, would rely on de facto decriminalisation, and the UK... Home Office, the English-based Home Office, has uh, thwarted efforts of that (coughs) sort because they go against UK drug laws. Even testing party-goers' drugs at festivals, which is known to um, save lives uh, and nightclubs, festivals and nightclubs, uh, is controversial and far from comprehensive because it too requires de de facto decriminalization. The cost of the war on drugs uh, are estimated globally to be $100 billion annually. Uh, And in England and Wales, the annual cost of Class A drug use is estimated at over 15 billion. In Scotland, around 3.5 billion. Um, So the question is, are there alternatives? And Of course there are, and around the world there are beginning to be experiments in different ways of handling (coughs) non-medical drug use. Uh, And in 2016, countries around the world lined up at a United Nations meeting to say that the war on drugs was lost. Let's be um, realistic about this, they said. Um, rather than a drug free world, the unlikely focus of previous meetings that have been held over the years, what about a world free of avoidable harm? Mm. So, harm minimization. <coughs> a realistic approach to maximizing health, minimizing harm, upholding human rights, and avoiding moral judgments about adults who use drugs. And the two key approaches, uh, in brief, are to decriminalize usage or to legalize the supply as well. Mm. Um, so decriminalization, uh, I think there's a, a very strong growing consensus that, this, uh, th- that criminalizing drug users is counterproductive and harmful, and that a public health approach should be the priority. And this is the view of the United Nations, mm-hmm. the World Health Organization, the Royal College of Physicians, the BMA, the UK government's own drugs advisers, mm-hmm. the ACMD, uh, a, and a growing number of lawyers and law enforcement experts. In 2001, Portugal decriminalized all drug use because it was faced with a huge rise in deaths among injecting drug users. Drug users still um, have penalties, but they are civil, not criminal penalties, and they are taken into drug treatment programs and and treated as um, people who have a a health problem rather than a criminal one. And overall drug use uh, in Portugal has not increased Mm -hmm. out of line with other European countries. People who don't believe this policy is working like to look at the... Steady increase in drug use in Portugal, but it's it's no greater than across Europe. Meanwhile, deaths and HIV infection have fallen substantially in Portugal. So, I think that's a, an experiment we have to pay very strong attention to. Uh, Decriminalisation is permitted under UN treaties, uh, but we ought to make clear that um, it is not an end in itself. And I, my own view is that legalisation is a, is a better route. Um, but decriminalisation does offer uh, the, the benefit of making it easier to offer people uh, to promote uh, promote other better ways of living and harm reduction interventions. Um, I don't believe it's a soft option, it wouldn't be easy to achieve, but it is an evidence-based option that recognises that patients with drug use disorders need help rather than punishment. Um, but as I say, decriminalisation is 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 one step, the problem with it of course is that it leaves the supply of drugs in the hands of criminals um, and it therefore leaves our children and um, adults uh, of course receiving drugs of unknown strength um, and of course um, the the, the problems of um, interacting with criminality and the profits of crime being fed back into crime so (coughs) legalisation seems to many of us to be the right approach, legalization with very, very heavy regulation. Canada is one of several jurisdictions that have legalized the sale of recreational cannabis as a starting point last year. And I think it's too early to know exactly how that will pan out. Um, But, uh, and also of course there are many other cannabis decriminalization, Mm. legalization rather, projects in American states and in Uruguay. One of the problems of the American situation is that it's entirely unregulated. Mm. And I I think it's important to say that that the policy that that I and others would like to see the UK adopt would be a very strictly regulated policy where you have um, age limits, um, uh, very clear policies on um, quality of drugs um, and drug testing to ensure that people are getting what they think they're getting, along with a great deal of investment in education um, and uh, harm reduction and treatment services I think the evidence base for this is growing. Whether the poli- politics would ever become mature enough in this country for politicians to be able to adopt such a policy is, is a, a real issue. So two years ago, the BMJ called for decriminalisation, but also um, for investigation into legalisation of drug supply to, retain, to regain control from violently illegal markets, and also, I think crucially, to bring the profits from sale of drugs back into our tax exchequer because these are vast amounts of money that are currently um, being spent within the criminal sector. Um, Other bodies have followed suit. I've mentioned the United Nations World Health Organization. Sorry, I don't mean followed suit. They didn't follow us. We've all done this at about the same time. I don't want to claim too much for the BMJ. Um, uh, But there are many serving politicians who are also supportive of this, but it's a very difficult policy for some people to come out and um, adopt. Um, So... I believe we have an obligation to investigate legalization and regulation, to uh, collect evidence on benefits and harms, and to act on that evidence. Um, And I think as one step towards legalization and regulation, decriminalization is is the next option. And clearly, providing people with safe places to inject their drugs, I think, is an obvious next step. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much. And finally, we turn to Johannes.
5: Yeah, thank you for having me, and thank you all of you. Um, I'm an anthropologist here at the university, and I always see myself as sitting in between people that actually have experience, like John here, and people that do all of the very high-level flying. um, Because what I do is I spend a lot of time, and that's um, what I did in Paris, and a little bit in um, San Francisco recently, and in, in London, with people on the streets. I researched homelessness from various different angles um, and one thing that came to me very quickly when I first started looking at it in London is a lot of the people that I was spending my days with um, were injecting drugs Mm -hmm. um, and smoking crack, uh, taking pills um, and it shifted a little bit when I um, shifted my field site from London to Paris. Um, But I want to give you a little bit also to round this off and to come to the point that you just raised namely safe injection facilities um, of, an view, of a view of what these people were doing on a day-to-day basis what I saw them um, do in order to get drugs um, what I observed at Europe's biggest train station which is where I, I did most of my work at the Gare du Nord in Paris um, and what happened in their interactions with different of the institutions that, um, the kind that Vicky was talking about so I spent about three summers looking at, at homelessness and, and issues around that in London and after that I spent two full years um, being on the streets most days volunteering in different institutions in Paris um, and particularly in Paris I spent time with about 20 to 25 people over the two years um, and I saw them score drugs. So buy drugs on what I ended up calling the drug strip, which is right behind where you arrive when you go to Paris on the Eurostar, um, behind the Gare du Nord, um, which is Europe's biggest train station. They would stroll back and forth um, through and in front of the of the car, um, asking people for money. That's how a lot of them would be able to afford um, the drugs that <coughs> they would buy. Um, and we're talking about between 5 and 10, 15 euros, depending mm-hmm. on what it was that they <laughs> to buy at the time, crack was relatively expensive because Paris has a lot of method and programs, um, which then also makes it into the illegal market, mm-hmm. you could relatively cheaply buy that, um, and you could do that on um, the platform of the Metro Line 4, that's where a lot of the crack was actually sold because people could easily jump on the train when the police was coming down from one side. I've never actually seen them come down from both sides, mm. which would have been a logical thing to do, um, <laughs> to, to catch people. So people would go down after they had made enough money to buy drugs there, um, would potentially even smoke it right in one of the nooks and crannies um, off the platform, or go up, leave the train station. At the time, um, which was before the, the train station was renovated, which is still ongoing, but. Um, not finished. Uh, there was much more open space where people could sneak <coughs> in behind a wall, sit down, um, find the vein, if that was still possible, um, prepare the heroin and inject it. Um, they would do it on the public toilets, on stairs, leading to the underground parking right behind. There's a massive hospital La was yeah, right behind the train station. Um, sometimes simply openly, without consideration of who could see them. And there was police around a lot of different security forces. Sometimes they turned a blind eye, sometimes they would catch people, but there were syringes lying around, particularly behind the station. There was a chance that you would run into somebody smoking crack coming out of the metro. People did not have safe places to be, and that came with all kinds of dangers and possibilities. For the people themselves, imagine trying to um, put a syringe a needle in your arm when you could have caught, in the next moment by the police forces, but also for the people living there, for any of the tourists passing through, um, there was needle lying around from people that would have hepatitis C. Um, you could in- infect yourself. But already at the time there was an organization called Gaia, which is still very much active, trying to support the people that I su- was walking around with on a day-to-day to- day to day basis. They were originally part of Médecins Sans Frontières, and started over 20 years ago. Their goal at the time, and that's ongoing, is to help people with addiction, living in these situations of marginalization, so poverty, insecurely housed. They weren't necessarily all sleeping on the streets, but they were, were often homeless um, in one way or the other, to support them with harm reduction. I volunteered in two of the main um, vehicles uh, that they were using for that purpose. And they were actual vehicles. Imagine a white van um, that was a mobile unit handing out heroin substitute. There was always um, a medical professional in the back of the bus. One person would open the door, come in. He would've, she would have had to register before that, undergo a medical examination, and be prescribed a specific dosage of what was mostly methadone, so a heroin substitute, potentially some other drugs to deal with mental health issues, or for instance um, addiction (coughs) to alcohol, which was often done with um, Valium. And it would be handed to you, and you had to consume it on the spot, um, in front of the medical professional that was there. And you could do that every day. Um, And there was a second vehicle, which was also (coughs) driving around from specific spot to specific spot, not just randomly. Um, particularly in the north of Paris which is where most of the um, insecurely housed and and homeless people with drug addictions would be and hand out paraphernalia Mm. so anything from 20 different types of needles to different types of syringes to clean water Mm. to um, pads to condoms Um, they would also test your substances for you for free you could do an HIV test there Uh, it was kind of you could also have um, first aid if needed it was kind of a a mini safe injection site without you being able to actually inject there. And this was about 2015 and fifteen and sixteen. Um, these services were completely based on a no-questions-asked policy. You would have to give a name and an age, but that was just to make sure that on a trust basis we wouldn't serve minors. Um, some of the people that we saw we would see every day, sometimes several times a day one would get to know each other, relationships would build, I would know their names, they would know my name. Um, And what this really helped with um, is both a more secure, a more secure relationship that these people were having with substances, um, but also a way for them into other services. While the buses, and I'll tell you in a second, what these buses actually ended up becoming um, were quite confined in what they could do. Um, They referred people into rehabilitation facilities, into social service facilities where you could get benefits, (coughs) you could get housing, access to that was facilitated and specifically because you had these relationships that build it up over time and if people needed something then you were to go. So we were there somewhere in between a supermarket handing out needles and an attentive therapist supporting the people wherever we could. We also, and this is becoming another point in a second, we were walking around, specifically around the train station collecting needles and the paraphernalia we could find, so trying to keep the neighbors and the passing people safe as well. I left my field work um, to come back here um, in late 2016, and since then the two mobile units who are still ongoing, have been turned into the first official safe injection facility Mm. that was opened in 2016, right there, in part of the hospital, but outside enough that people don't think they're going into the hospital. Mm -hmm. I've I've been back um, quite a few times and I've seen what has happened there, Um, and I've seen the build-up to it, um, and the specific issue that was going on was a big campaign by neighbors um, which is well well known and often called not in my backyard. Mm. Um, and they are now actually among the people that are most positive about what has happened because they saw the needles lying around that are now not there anymore. They saw the people lingering mm. around, buying drugs, scoring drugs, um, taking them there, and that is now all inside um, because the injection facility is open. Um, I think eight hours a day, and people can just be there. As well. You can go in there. Um, Inject drugs, imagine it as a kind of big seminar room where you have a bench that goes through the room with little dividers Mm. um, between the the different spaces and there can be up to 12 people at any one point injecting drugs. And again, as in advance, there's going to be a medical professional there. They reduce the overdose rate to basically zero Mm. Um, because people that come there, um, if something happens, there's going to be a axone available um, and there's going to be a person that knows how to, to deal with it. They also have a room where people can smoke crack that, again, is totally transparent. And they have another space where people can relax afterwards or before and um, for however long they want. And Vicky was doing a, a small introduction to harm reduction um, and Fiona was also talking about that. But that's exactly on the ground what that looks like, what, was Gaia, what Gaia was doing and what um, has been put into place in Portugal, the Netherlands, Denmark, Geneva, Vancouver. Um, that's harm reduction. And there's a variety of possible measures from what I did in advance, simple needle exchanges, um, to outpatient medical care, to safe injection sites, and the endpoint, if you wish, um, heroin prescription services. And the means really present, as, as Fiona was <coughs> saying, a direct alternative to criminalization and prosecution of substance uh, substance use. As various studies, and Fiona gave you a big overview of that, have shown, it's a method that comes with very immediate benefits on various different levels. And this is now again thinking more about it from the perspective of the users. The health outcomes when it comes to reducing overdoses um, and just the clean paraphernalia, the use of that reduces the um, risk of infecting yourself with hepatitis C. 90% of that in the UK comes through injecting. Um, The healthcare costs, Fiona talked about that briefly, because of the infectious diseases, because of the emergency (coughs) services that are called out, because of the hospital (coughs) capacity that's used up is drastically reduced. Neighborhood protection, this whole paradox of the neighbors are the first to complain, but then they're also the first to see that's actually something good for them as well, because the needles are gone, the litter of the paraphernalia is gone. And then the most important thing that is often not looked at properly, because it's so long term and so hard to measure, is actually the access to the care system. As John was describing, there's these moments of self-realization, and all of the people I've ever met who were homeless and um, drug users, they had these regularly. They came to me, I met them, um, and they would say, I want to stop. I want to stop now, I've had this experience, I don't want to do it anymore. And you have to be there in this specific moment. That's when they have to think, oh, and I know somebody who can help me. Because I've been going there every day and I have this relationship with these people at the safe injection site or at the mobile van, um, I go there now and, and they can, we can try this rehab thing. It might work and it might not work, and John said, um, it might take several tries. And different things work for different people. It might not be a rehab. It might be something else. Um, But this moment and this connection is what I think is most crucially positive about these (coughs) American sites. So the question, and that's what I want to end on, is why why do we not move there? Why specifically are we not even close to that in the US, where the war on drugs is actually um, absolutely massive? It completely dwarfs what we're seeing here. But neither of the two states um, have approved the opening of a safe injection site. Um, and my thesis is relatively simple. It's not a question of rational calculation. It's cheaper, it's much better for everyone involved the neighbors, the people themselves, the medical professionals. Um, p- even thinking about what Vicky was saying when it comes to the reduction of budgets for harm reduction, you could. Turn that upside down mm. and save a lot of the costs mm. that you're spending at the moment, and we haven't even talked about the prison system because mm. that really also comes in in the states where mass incarceration is very much connected with the war on drugs. And there's one dimension in there which also is slightly different here, which is a racial one. Uh, the war on drugs was launched in, in 1971 partly as a war on race. Mm. Mm. It's after the slavery was abolished, and there was another means here that very deliberately um, and consciously um, people were putting a lot of black people into prison. And that is going on and continues to go on today. So my thesis is, um, it's a question of ideology. This is not pragmatic policy making. It doesn't have anything to do with economics. Um, in many parts of the western world we foster a deep-seated belief that certain substances, think about <laughs> alcohol, are evil and must be stopped. Um, paired with Factors such as the racial dimension, particularly in the US, which makes it even more of an ideological question, harm reduction would not be right despite making sense. Mm.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you very much. We're going to have some time for questions and discussion in a moment. Um, I'm just wondering whether, before that, any of the panel have any comments they'd like to make on anything anyone else has said so far.
4: Uh, the only thing just to add uh, pick up on your on hand uh, the, the business about um, alcohol uh, mm. which is the, the uh, comparative people talk about and we know that prohibition of alcohol in the 20s in the states was a, a, you know, a, an opening to enormous amounts of crime and um, disorder um, and was reversed for that reason um, well partly for that reason uh, but th- th- we, we tolerate an enormous amount of harm from alcohol in, this, in our society, and um, the, the burden on just the health service, but m- much more widely in terms of crime and in terms of violence, uh, violence to women, um, loss, of, loss of productivity in the workforce. Um, alcohol is by far and away uh, considered mm-hmm. to be a, a worse um, economic and social harm and health harm than illicit drugs. So I think the, the, the balance is to much more firmly regulate alcohol and, and, and liberalise but still heavily regulate uh, drugs.
0: Thank you. We've, um, in the discussion so far, we've moved between some quite high-level issues around decriminalisation and legalisation through to some very practical ones. And I hope that the discussion from now on will address both ends of the spectrum because it seems to me that we do need a very differentiated approach to this challenge. In other words, people need to pick up different bits of the agenda here and push at them. There is, as we've been reminded, an extremely practical question about what we might call controlled consumption. That is both safe injection facilities and quality control of substances themselves. That's a very immediate question. It's an immediate local question in the city but in any context you care to look at that is one way in which something of the deadlock could be broken. There are slightly more nebulous but equally important issues which have been touched on about what the the social context and the personal networking is that allows people to get beyond a sort of brick wall and I think John you, you spoke in a way of that paradoxical experience in prison really of that being the context where your own motivation was was kindled because there were the right people at the right time and the right space for you also there's the policy question of the coordination of response one of the things that vicky said was about multidisciplinary teams and the need for people with Connected, interlocking skills to be addressing this, not treating it as simply a one issue or a set of isolated issues. And then there's the macro question of policy, legal policy, mm. and what we've already heard about the deep, deep resistance to this and the lack of political will and how we address that. So, quite a range of things to talk about there, but let's try to keep them all in focus and over to you for questions. We've got somebody up there in the white T-shirt and then in the yellow here. I'm just wondering what transition
6: period would look like for legalised um, supply and use of drugs. So surely doing it straight away would just leave the entire supply in the back market and legal the supplies of cocaine in the UK.
4: <laughs> Fair um, it's a very uh, good question. And um, th- to my knowledge, nobody's quite got that right yet. Um, And one of the issues certainly in Colorado seems to be between the the legal and the the illicit cannabis providers and, and, uh, you know, pricing and um, people still find that it's cheaper to go to the illicit people than to the uh, legal suppliers, you know, and and the the, the range of product is better. There's all sorts of issues in in that context. Canada, um, I think, may not have thought this through sufficiently. I think if if we were to get near to such a thing, uh, we would want to um, not do the Brexit approach, but do the Ireland referendum approach of getting the policy clear before yeah. we put it to a wider, <laughs> a wider view. And, and that would need a lot of work amongst amongst experts in the legal aspects and in the in the, the industry commercial aspects of, of creation. In the meantime, I mean, I think you may know that the UK is the largest exporter of cannabis cannabis products in the world, and yet they're not legal in this country. I mean, there's a slightly a huge irony yeah. in that. <laughs> so um, the, the industry is ramping up and the, the amount of money in cannabis and cannabis products is, is huge around the world. So um, we, we need, we'd need to act swiftly to make sure the regulation was right, and that would be a big job for Parliament and policymakers and legal advisers. and you're quite right, that, that's not a small thing.
0: Thank you. I have a question here, then in the middle there, if you just wave your hand and then <coughs> down there. Blue jersey.
3: Vicky, do you want to have a go? I'll have a go. We've got Scots here. We've <laughs> got some Scots, Scots. yeah. Look, <laughs> you yeah.
0: Um, John.
1: You can
3: start and I'll follow through.
1: I never did use heroin in Scotland, in Scotland <laughs> so. but I did visit quite a lot. And uh, what I've seen up there, uh, unemployment it's massive. Um, it's bigger up there than anywhere else in the country. I think the northeast of Scotland, that fishing industries, yeah. dead, you know, everything is dead, and a big part of it, the unemployment, I think. Why? I'm in Scotland, Yeah. Yep. The availability.
3: Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. Vicky? Okay. Yeah, I can no. follow
3: on from that. Thanks. No. Yeah, I mean, I'm Scottish, so I've got a sort of vested interest <laughs> in this. Uh, and I was up in Aberdeen, um, and the fishing industry was a big point. Peterhead was the thing that the, the heroin capital of Scotland at that time, back in the um, the early nineties. The other feature is that I think you John touched on it. The Disadvantaged communities generally are more affected by drugs and alcohol concerns. And the availability of heroin within communities where there's mass unemployment, low life, life, life chances, um, educational chances, and all the rest of it do compound um, heroin use. The other challenge that Scotland's got is that it's um, not been as. It's, it, the prison system in Scotland had much better drug treatment in the 90s than the communities did which was really interesting. When I first started in um, 98, it was in a prison in a, on a placement, and they had a methadone maintenance program in one of the prisons, which was driven very much by the HIV outbreak. Mm. So they responded really strongly in prisons, but access to good quality community treatment was, was even more difficult to in, uh, access than in England. And where there was huge investment in drug treatment in England, there wasn't the same investment in Scotland until much later. And the systems in Scotland are still separate, so the prescribing services for heroin addiction are provided through um, NHS services and the psychosocial interventions are provided by a range of voluntary sector providers and they're still separate so they're not picking up that integrated feature which I talked about in the you know what works in, in treatment services in this country they're getting, they're getting there but they've just been a little bit slower on the uptake of understanding that you can do things in a different way and it's just a traditional very much a traditional treatment model would be my assessment.
0: Thank you. Let's go to the middle there, and then the gentleman in blue down there. Um,
2: thank you very much for your very uh, really interesting discussion.
6: Um, uh, my question is around access to healthcare, accessibility to users.
4: Um i was working in the surrounding area, then with only populations, and in London. And over the past few months, I've known seven people that died due to um, midlife poor healthcare. They uh, presented to A and E with sepsis.
6: Wounds, or they have been um, sectioned whilst in
4: hospital heart attacks and then refused to go back and um, well, of that. Uh, what would your recommendations be for trying to get someone to access healthcare when, or, or how do you
6: see access to healthcare for those that are currently still using it? how can we bridge
1: that and make it more accessible
6: It's very accessible
1: uh-huh. uh, the services for like, the injuries you 're describing there, uh, stuff like that they 're right there the services are there uh, and you'll see people sitting about showing off abscesses on their legs and weeping and stuff and it 's just for money for a crack and own I think because and you know, i 've actually offered the guy money to go to hospital to get these dressed mm. and there's no there's no interest it's just it 's just a uh, a show. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I know the guy personally and uh, I chatted with him. I said, what are you doing? Come on. And it's just the show to get money. He hasn't got the desire yet to get clean, isn't he? And I keep trying every time I pass him.
0: Vicky, brief comment.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think cambridge we 're quite lucky in cambridge you 've got things like the Cambridge you know services like Cambridge access surgery, so people are able to access services that would normally not normally want to walk into a, a service and um, and receive that kind of help it 's one of those situations that you can have all the services out there, but if people 's desire is not to engage in them then that 's just the way it goes but it is about the frontline professionals that are engaging the people in this room who go out and do volunteer on shifts, engage with the homeless community reinforces those messages because it might be the one day that you've just had enough. That's the time and that's the ticket and it's about maximising that so if they are willing to engage in services it's using the opportunities when they are ready and want to engage but also at any intervention with drug and alcohol treatment if they're engaging in needle exchange even through the pharmacy it's about the pharmacies reinforcing those messages so mm-hmm. everybody's singing again, working in partnership, singing from yeah. the same hymn sheet.
0: Thank you. I missed somebody up there in the mm-hmm. black... Uh, top and then we'll come to you if we may. Johannes would you like to?
4: Oh, well, I, I just—I oh. mean, I think, I think the issue about the, the fact that the black market w- would not go away, uh, and the dark web is a, is a, is a source for you know our more networked kids to get hold of stuff as well—I um, think is absolutely right. Uh, but I think what um, the evidence seems to suggest is that um, legal channels are preferable. They can um, encourage lower, lower strength drugs, higher quality drugs. And that parents can combine educational messages with if you're going to use cannabis you know i suggest you don't go to for skunk because at the moment skunk is the (coughs) only cannabis available in cambridge and in most cities um but you know the kind of cannabis that is rather less strong uh, might be something they'd rather experiment with so i mean i think the, the idea is to to pull away from this this um this war to the, the, the escalation of the, the arms race for stronger and stronger mm-hmm. drugs which is currently where we are um, so I mean I'm not for the moment pretending that 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 this would remove the black market I mean there's a black market in tobacco and alcohol and so many p- products but it would provide um, a safer option and the opportunity for education
3: and all of those things I've got A
0: quick point from Vicki. Yeah, it is
3: a very quick point. I mean, it's we know (coughs) that. I mean, we're all we've all been young people. People generally want to, at some point in their lives, experiment whether it's tobacco, whether it's cannabis, whether it's alcohol, whatever it might be. But what we need to move towards with regulation as well would be my desire is a much um, much stronger harm reduction message. So if you are going to use drugs, these are the concerns at the moment by having this sort of criminalised outlook. Young people don't even want to ask the questions of parents, of, of professionals, because they're worried about being criminalised. So it's just about being much more open about the issues. Thank you.
0: I've got a question over there, front row here, and up there. I'm inclined to leave that as, as a, as a yeah, comment a good, to, to a ponder one. for the moment, because I've got um, three people lined up in the front here, in the black jersey there, and uh, oh, just by yes, Elizabeth. and So can you take you first, please? Yeah, but <laughs> do you want to make a quick comment on, on that?
5: Or? Yeah, I mean, that, that no, feeds into what I was saying before, right? The, um, the most important point for me, um, and that goes also back to what you said about Australia, this is not a rational decision-making. It doesn't have anything to do with the numbers, which is what we normally are so obsessed about, right? Yeah. If, the, if there's evidence, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in the, in the medical sciences, if there's evidence, there should be a policy based on that evidence, but it isn't. This is an ideological problem that we're having, right? But um, the the most important point for me, also abstracting from these numbers, is really the immediate, um, long-term impact that you have because of these relationships.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Let's go up there and then uh, just a along. A <laughs> um,
6: so all distance
3: Okay, um, I'll sort of start in the response to this. I mean, harm reduction generally comes with a kind of prevention angle, so we can provide pr- advice and information about drugs and alcohol that might prevent people from using. But there's not there's nothing really that can stop young people and people <coughs> experimenting with drugs. It's part of the human condition. The reasons that behind. I me mean, it was really interesting to hear what John was talking about because you know there's lots of reasons why people. Use drugs. When I worked in prisons, my experience was that nearly every single person I engaged with in a men's prison estate in London had either suffered some sort of trauma, Mm. be that parental bereavement, grandparent bereavement, often violence in the home, abuse, neglect, and all those kind of things which I'm sure you've all heard about before. So that's often a factor in people having long-term drug um, and alcohol dependency issues. Lots of people go through their lives experimenting with drugs. Lots of young people go to parties, go to festivals. They use drugs and then they stop using them. And then other people get into them through whatever it might be. We, what use, Some of the terms that I use is it's too, you're two bad choices away from ending up on the street and you're two bad choices away from ending up with a heroin addiction. It can, be, it can be that simple as well. So there is obviously a prevention angle that we do with young people, but it's not about just Say No, which was the campaign that was around when I was a kid, which, you know, it wasn't, didn't make anybody say no. It made yeah. people say yes rather yeah. than no. So we've got to be really careful about the kind of messages we give, and it's very clear that with young people who are um, in uh, disadvantaged homes, who have experienced trauma, who are at the edge of mental health services, that those are the kind of people that we're engaging in, um, in, harm, in harm reduction and in prevention services. So there's no way that we can stop people taking drugs or experimenting with drugs but it's the responses when they access treatment and when they ask for help that need to be there, the right information needs to be available, the right treatment at the right time, and responding to individuals. You know, If there is a trauma problem or a trauma issue, having a trauma-informed approach with the interventions <coughs> and getting them right, and having aspirations for service users and people who use drugs. Lots of times people come back in. I, mean, I don't think I gave the example because I think I forgot to mention it. 37 years one of our service users had been coming in and out of services <coughs> and when he got an optimised dose that's when he stopped using so, and he wasn't an old that old a person but he'd been using for a very 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 long time so if the ro- intervention had been right at the right time it wouldn't have been 37 years so i hope that goes some way to answer your question
0: i've got three people lined up and we're getting close to 7:30. so i'm afraid i'll just take those three and then together <coughs> and then ask for any responses from the panel so elizabeth first Then we've got somebody down over there. If you could wave your hand. Sorry, the the end of the rope there. And then just in front of Thank you very much over here, please. Question up there. Yeah.
3: yeah. No, no, no. no, sorry,
0: on the end of the row, just in front of. <laughs> and then I'll ask for a roundup of comments. Thank you. Um, Well, I'll I'll ask all the members of the panel to to comment on any aspect of those last few questions they'd like to. John, perhaps you'd like to start again, since you you were directly asking (laughs) this. Sorry, it
1: wasn't my uh, first prison sentence that uh, I got clean on. It was my third one. And uh, I did come out the first one and went straight back on drugs. Come out the second one and went straight back on drugs. Um, It just went long enough. The work of the prison sentence went long enough for me as I said earlier, I, I was still high off of uh, what I was doing before I went away, not really uh, clean, not thinking properly, and when I got five years that gave me a long enough, I think just long enough mm-hmm. really, just, just long enough to, to get a grip on my life and have a clear think of where I want to go and what uh, I want to go. <laughs> Some people might say, oh, you can think about that overnight, and change your life overnight, like right? you thought like that, you know, but <laughs> I know it took me 20 years, and uh, just getting fed up with it, just getting fed up with this circle, you know, it's just boring after a while, but you only do heroin to function, you don't do it because you're like, oh, this is really nice, this is brilliant, you know, you just do it if you're not so you can go and function and steal or deal again, you know. It, there's no high offer for me. There's no high offer, no you know, head in this thigh or anything. It's just to open your eyes to stop you sneezing and, uh, and to get you out of there to steal the deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And,
0: and, and that's it. That's what it does. Thank you, Johannes.
5: <clears throat> yeah, I'll, I'll um, directly refer to what you say. How do we think public opinion might be shifting? Um, there's two points that I would make uh, how we're already seeing that happening. One is, um, it's going to be one step at a time. Um, and doing a pilot in Sydney, or doing, opening the first one of these rooms in Paris, the second one is already open in Bordeaux.
1: Right?
5: Um, in Copenhagen, they had a similar mm. experience where they <coughs> opened one that was massively expanded two years after that. So once you get a foot in, door um, and it works. We, we haven't really seen um, any <coughs> incidences where it, if it's well done it hasn't really done the job. Um, so I, I see this as once you s- get started, once you do the first step, the second step will hopefully follow and that's potentially going to be um, made stronger by experimenting <laughs> with other substances, right? Um, we're doing it with cannabis at the moment, I mean you said um, the Canadians haven't really figured out the mechanisms, then let's do that first. Um, mm-hmm. Cannabis is much less harmful um, than heroin, it isn't really um, killing people in the same way at <coughs> all. Um, let's figure out the mechanisms of decriminalizing, legalizing a substance from the state perspective, from the supply perspective, um, let's answer all of these questions, almost use it as a, <coughs> as a training crown before we go to the next step. And at that point, we would have had millions of people using these substances that wouldn't have used them before um, and changing their opinion because it's not, as we've said before, a question of rational thinking. It's a question of feeling, right? The more people you see who are doing better in your direct environment, um, the quicker you will change your own opinion. Thank you. Vicky, brief, conclusion. Yeah, very comment?
3: briefly, um, I completely Hear you about the fentanyl crisis in Canada, and is the—I reg- mean, I'm very much a—you know—not my organisation. We are endorsing it, but very much behind regulation. Um, I think that in terms of making policy changes, it's—it's it's a head-scratching situation. The advisory council on the misuse of drugs, you, you know, the United Nations uh, UN Drugs Policy Commission, all BMJ are all um, advocating for it. So I, it's a head-scratching moment for me in terms of prison um, outcomes. For me, it's very much about having uh, partnership working, people working together. It goes back to that point I made earlier on. If somebody's coming out of prison, they've got a good discharge plan, they're linked in with the local services, they're able to, uh, ideal world, have access to some sort of education, training, employment, something to do when you get out of prison, you're more likely to maintain the gains. But the main thing is about having contact with community services prior to discharge. That seems to be something that works. In terms of women, there are gender-specific strategies It follows on from the trauma-informed point that I made earlier on, that lots of um, treatment services are now trying to have women-only spaces um, that look at addressing trauma much more readily, and not just the sort of traditional trauma, but trauma that might have come from difficult relationships, domestic violence, and these kind of things that are responding to women's needs, but more needs to be done.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Yes, uh, d- on the Canadian situation, I absolutely agree. It's um, very, very
4: frightening. I sadly, a friend of my son's died in Canada from a fentanyl overdose. He was um, using cocaine and didn't realize that it had been uh, contaminated. Um, he, was in his, uh, he was 19. So it's a really, really major issue. And I get back to that. It's about 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 regulation and, and all the things we've talked about, making sure that the law is, is, is <coughs> right. And uh, I, I think it's a, a huge issue. Um, how, how we'll shift public opinion? Well, I think the experiments that people talked about, absolutely getting those done, getting them properly um, um, evaluated and publicized. Mm-hmm. Um, the, one of the things that I'm working on is getting the medical and nursing professions mm-hmm. um, to, to, to take this view because people will listen And and worse still, they will listen to the medical professions who say don't do it. And understandably, the people who are saying don't do it at the moment, the most influential are the psychiatrists, um, because they see the very worst (laughs) results (laughs) of this. Um, And so their view is that this is a terribly, cannabis, for example, (laughs) extremely dangerous. But they don't see the vast majority of people who are who are using cannabis without that problem. So I think that we've got to, and I'm working on trying to get the, 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 I personally, we are working on trying to get the psychiatrists to to shift a little bit um, on that. I think that would be huge. But also the politicians, there's the all-party parliamentary committee um, on drug policy reform, which Molly Meacher is co-chair of, and she and I are, <coughs> are meeting and talking, so I mean there are lots of conversations going on, not just by I me. Mean, um, and just to hot off the press is this um, embargoed for midnight tonight, so you're getting an early thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the UK drugs policy is failing according to the Health and Social Care Committee, and they say that responsibility for drugs policy should move from the Home Office to the Department for Health and Social mm-hmm. Care. So this is, um, this is you know, it's, it's happening, and we've all got to We've, the more we all talk about it, the more it will happen.
0: Thank you. I think that's, that's a very.
4: <laughs>
0: that's, that's a perfect place to stop because I think what we've heard has given all of us some stories to tell, some points to press on. And the irony that I think we ought to be carrying away is that the way in which our legal and political systems are dealing with this is itself, in a sense, an example of addictive behavior that is <laughs> irrational compulsive behavior ideologically driven in this case rather than physiologically but it's it's a kind of addiction mm. it's it's nothing to do with evidence it's nothing to do with well-being we do need to take that out and press it and see well open our eyes to what's going on in other countries and see that there are other ways of responding which are more oriented to the well-being of our population the security long-term security especially of our younger people. Thank you for coming. Thank you to all our panelists for a wonderful set of contributions. Thank you for your intelligent questions. Thank you to John for your inspiration in setting this up. Thank you all.